studying the living and active Word of God. This two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, August 8th, we're studying Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 12 to 29. As Moses continues his first sermon, he reminds the people how the Lord has allotted land for them already on the east side of the Jordan River. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Philip Hoppe. Pastor Hoppe serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas. Pastor Hoppe, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Hey, glad to be with you again today to discuss God's Word. So we're looking at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 3 today. What should we know about the book of Deuteronomy, what we've encountered so far to help us with this text today? Well, I think what we want to kind of get is that we're, you know, as Numbers and Deuteronomy run together, in one sense, they're a a continuation, but we could say sort of these first three chapters of Deuteronomy are sort of a quick review, Uh, you know, sort of if you did take a break between Numbers and Deuteronomy, uh, this would be helpful for you to, you know, kind of remember uh, where we are, which is namely, you know, like you said, uh, on the east side of the Jordan and the often called the, you know, the plains of Moab uh, in that region. Uh, And we're, you know, just that close to the people of God going in to possess that land on the other side of the Jordan. Uh, And we're kind of finishing up then that review that Moses has been taking us through uh, and kind of just getting set really to go forward from this point to the actual, uh, you know, turning towards the actual conquest of the rest of the promised land. So, and as you said, we have some quite a bit of overlap continuation from the book of Numbers, although we've seen already in the first three, two and a half chapters, I suppose, that Moses has been selective in what he has and hasn't recounted. He's not being deceptive in doing that, but he is doing things with a a purpose in mind. He's preparing this new generation to enter into the promised land. And so in the way that he's told them, reminded them of the things that have happened over the last 40 years, and now we're getting really close to very recent history here, almost to the present day with our text today. He's doing so with the purpose of encouraging them as they enter into the promised land. With that purpose in mind of of what we've been calling his first sermon here in the book of Deuteronomy, how is this division of the land that we're going to encounter, you know, all these names, places we don't always know where they are, how is that going to function as a part of this sermon? Why why does this provide encouragement, motivation for the people as they're about to enter into the promised land? Well, I guess I don't know exactly how your other guests have spoken about it, but I, I kind of think this, uh, you know, all this stuff that happens on the east side of the Jordan is sort of a confidence building appetizer, right, to what's about to occur. So uh, even in the fact that, you know, the people that they're fighting, when you go way back to, you know, sending the spies into the land, of course, they come back and they say, one of the reasons we can't do this is because 
there are these mighty giant men uh, living in these lands. Well, uh, now they've encountered um, these two kings uh, that uh, indeed, uh, especially uh, the one king, uh, King Og, we get described as a, you know, a giant man himself, uh, at least judging from the size of his bed, right? And so there's <laughs> there's this idea uh, that God is indeed proving what Joshua and Caleb had said long ago, that they could go because the land was given to them. And even these things which should stop them along the way, like huge, mighty men, they will not be uh, anything uh, that will stop them in the end because the Lord, their God, is fighting for them. Uh, and so, you know, at least in, in my reading, this is, you know, God kind of builds up their confidence as they're preparing to um, go into the Jordan so that they know for certain, they've seen with their own eyes that the words, the words of the Lord are true uh, and they have nothing to fear. Mm. Confidence building appetizer. I think that's a, a new new way of speaking for us. But it, it's related to some other things that I think we have said. I, I forget which guest it was, but we've talked about the the image of a like a down payment. You know that the Lord provides a down payment on this side of the Jordan River as a, a proof of what is to come, the full payment that's going to come, or a, a guarantee. I think we've used a foretaste of the feast to come. I suppose that's an appetizer. Right. That's, yeah, that's yeah. an appetizer language. Yeah. Foretaste of the feast to come. So the Lord is is making good on his promise already before the, the fulfillment comes. And and yeah, it, it does build confidence for this generation. And I like the way that, that you put it. What Joshua and Caleb had pointed out to the people 40 years previous, now the Lord is showing the people they were right all along to put their trust in me. What you should have had 40 years ago, I am in fact going to deliver to you now. And it's this new generation that gets to to see that for their own eyes, with their own eyes, and experience that for themselves, even on this side of the Jordan River. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly it. And I think, you know, uh, of course, we always should just trust the, the word of the Lord uh, as it is. But, you know, God uh, regularly gives us sort of, a, you know, fulfillment of one of his words in order that we might then trust in the others. You know, we think of sometimes in the prophets where there's sort of a, a short-term prophecy and a prophecy generally that reaches all the way to, to Christ or even unto the last day. And, you know, the fulfillment of that short prophecy builds confidence in God's words so that we might trust the rest of his words. Well, and I think, I mean, this is language that St. Paul uses when he speaks of the, the work of the Holy Spirit today. Doesn't he call the Holy Spirit the, the down payment or the guarantee of what is yet to come for us? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's another, uh, you know, good way of, of thinking about that, right? That, yeah, we have this uh, spirit active in our life given through baptism. And because of that, that is our assurance that indeed we will have kind of the fullness of everything that Christ has won for us on the last day. And so, yeah, there's always, no matter where you are in the Bible until you get to the end end, right, there's always that now and not yet kind of uh, stuff going on. And and here, this is sort of, I guess we could say this, you know, conquering on the east side of the Jordan is the the now that gets ready them, gets them ready for uh, the not yet uh, that's coming soon in the future. And ultimately, you know, well, if we read into, you know, the book of Hebrews and all these different things, right, where we learn that this land that they're going into ultimately isn't the ultimate land they desire either, right? So there's even a, a further not yet that it's pointing them to as well.
All right, let's go ahead and take a look at this text from Deuteronomy chapter 3. With those themes in mind, we might come back to them as well. We're picking up in Deuteronomy 3, verse 12 this morning. When we took possession of this land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory beginning at Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, that is, all the region of Argob, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. All that portion of Bashan is called the land of Rephaim. Jair the Manassite took all the region of Argob, that is, Bashan, as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Machathites, and called the villages after his own name, Havath-Jair, as it is to this day. To Machir I gave Gilead, and to the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave the territory from Gilead as far as the valley of the Arnon, with the middle of the valley as a border, as far over as the river Jabbok, the border of the Ammonites, the Arabah also, with the Jordan as the border, from Kinnereth as far as the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, under the slopes of Pisgah on the east. And I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers, as to you, and they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession which I have given you. And I commanded Joshua at that time, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings." So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country, and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you, and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah, and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward, and look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua, and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see." So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. That is our text for today. That's Deuteronomy 3, verses 12 to 29. So, Pastor Hoppy, we get to do a little bit of geography yet again. We're on the east side of the Jordan River. If you get nothing else from that today, we're on the east side of the Jordan River. And I know you said geography is not your, your strong point. It's not mine either. If you have a map at home, it's always helpful to get one out for texts like these. But give us just a general feel of, of what's going on as Moses begins to divide up the land on the east side of the Jordan River. Well, one of the things, you know, that I find kind of fascinating about this is that, you know, when we think about God uh, dividing up this land, that even with that, he does so in regards to the tribes that he's dealing with, right? So here we're told that this particular land here on the east side is 
good land uh, for those who have a lot of livestock. And we're told then uh, that the Reubenites and the Gadites, right, are uh, definitely those people, that they are uh, ranchers, or I think you said, uh, you know, you had read somewhere, right, the cowboy tribes. Uh, right. uh, so that that works good here too. Um, and so I, I think it's kind of one of those things to just think about. Even when God distributes his gifts, he's doing so not just kind of like, hey, I've got all this land, let's split it up. But he actually is so good that he gives to each tribe uh, the land that'll be best for the things that they are uh, doing already. And so uh, this land of the Amorites, uh, these two kings uh, in particular that have been defeated um, here, uh, they are given this particular land um, and and they're, they're called to to settle there, uh, you know, and I guess maybe we'll wait a little bit to get to this idea of that, you know, they're not supposed to uh, just all stay there, that the the warring men are to, to go along with the rest of the tribes. But I, I guess in, you know, like I said, my uh, lack of geographical knowledge, but just, I, I'm just kind of amazed at how God, you know, prepares a place for them that is just perfectly suited for them. I think that's a that's a helpful point. Uh, yeah, I, I can't remember where I read that, but the cowboy tribes is what this is sometimes called. And we've got just to to do a little bit of geography in the south near the near the Dead Sea again on the east side. That's where you've got Reuben, and then as you work your way north, you come into Gad, and then farther north, and and farther north, like all the way up toward the Sea of Galilee. You heard the name Kinnereth in the text. That's another name for the the Sea of Galilee. You've got half of the tribe of Manasseh. So that's generally the way that this is being described here. All starting in the south again, Reuben, then Gad, then half of the tribe of Manasseh, south to north on the east side of the Jordan River. To, to your point about that, that God just doesn't do it like willy-nilly, but he's actually got a reason that this land is suited to these tribes. And I think, again, to I'm thinking forward to the New Testament and the way that, that Jesus speaks, particularly in the parable of the talents, comes to my mind, where you have the, the landowner who gives to three servants a different amount of, of money, and he gives to five one five talents, the next two, and then one. But, it, but Jesus says, to each according to his ability. That the the gifts of God are not just sort of they're not just scattered out there with no purpose, but he actually knows what he's doing. And he he keeps you in mind when he gives you his gifts. I, I think this is a good example of that here in Deuteronomy 3. And I think the Lord still works that way as he calls Christians into their vocations. Yeah, I think absolutely that this is this is something we totally can see. And again, I guess it shouldn't surprise us because maybe we we tend to think of it like that we're just out here and we have these personality traits or we have these talents and abilities, uh, and then God sort of you know gifts us in accordance with those. But of course, we got to remember first off, God's the one that created us with those personalities and all of that. So I guess it shouldn't surprise us that the one who can create us with unique gifts and talents also knows how to then gift us with the things that we need to kind of best utilize those things. Right. And and I think, too, that that helps us receive those gifts from God with thanksgiving rather than with maybe envy for someone else's gifts. You know, and I think about, say, the the table of duties that's in the small catechism and the, the way that Luther speaks of the various vocations that are there. And it, it might be easy to be envious of, of someone else's vocation rather than receive my vocation 
as as the Lord has given. So, you know, the Lord has given me the vocation of pastor. He's given others the vocation of of hearer. And there there might be envy between the two groups. Like I, I really wish I was a pastor. I wish I was the the hearer all the time. I don't I don't want to preach this Sunday morning. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but but when we if we have this perspective that no God is the the giver, the one who's apportioned these things, or as as Paul says in First uh, Corinthians twelve, you know, he's the one that arranges the church. I think that really helps us to receive our vocation, our gifts with thanksgiving rather than with covetousness or envy. Yeah, and that's something we definitely, you know, if the church is to function well, we really need to have that, right? Because if we're always chasing after someone else's vocations, uh, not only are we engaged in covetousness at the time, but we're also generally neglecting uh, to do the roles that we've been given well. That's right. So again, from from the geographical information that we get in Deuteronomy chapter 3, we see how the Lord apportions gifts to his children. He does so for their good, according to gifts he has already given them, that he might continue to do so. Let, let, maybe this is a, another thing we should talk about, because we, we've been talking about you know the whole idea of the, the foretaste, this is an appetizer, more is coming. Just the, the significance of the fact that they're receiving land. Why is the fact that they're receiving this land and then looking forward to the land on the other side of the Jordan? What is the significance of, of receiving that land? Well, I guess first and foremost, right, that God has promised this land uh, for so long now, right? Beginning, I mean, you know, obviously with Abraham, but I mean, even when you really take it back to the beginning of the scriptures, right, the uh, Adam and Eve are given a land in the beginning. And so we kind of see right from the beginning that uh, humanity and land go together. This is part of God's great design. It's how, um, you know, we can say in Genesis there, right, God's kind of creating the whole, the land, right, the earth for humanity, uh, and then, you know, with sin, like everything, that kind of relationship between humanity and the land becomes fractured. It becomes uh, frustrating at times, right? Uh, thorns and thistles and all of these kind of things. Um, but, you know, when we go forward, if we want to jump to the other end of the Bible, the the final things, there again, we don't find God's people just floating around in space, but we find them again in a good land, in a new new heaven and new earth. And of all the things kind of in between those two, that give us this ultimate sort of sense that this is how God intends things to be. It is the coming into the promised land that does that, that God is going to give his people this land. He's going to give them rest from their enemies in this land. He's going to dwell with them in this land. He's going to place his name there in this land. You know, you can go on and on, but I think it really just shows that uh, humanity is always intended to live by God, the creator in a good land. And he is, relentless in uh, assuring that that will happen. I think you, you connect that very helpfully, both to before in the scriptures and then after in the scriptures, such that it is vitally important that the Lord actually make good on his promise given to Abraham, that Abraham's descendants would dwell in this land. Like He needs to do that for the sake of his own faithfulness. This is something that does have to happen. Having said that, though, and the, the way that you've described the way the, the narrative of the scriptures goes after this, it's also important to see that it is not essential that these same descendants of Abraham, according to the flesh, dwell in that same strip of land forever, 
because the fulfillment of this promise that we're seeing right here, what we're seeing here is, is the fulfillment in part, but the fulfillment completely comes with our Lord Jesus Christ, who takes us to that eternal homeland. So we see both the, the necessity of what's happening in Deuteronomy, but also then the, the necessity of what happens with Jesus and for us in eternity, such that it doesn't need to bother us right now if there are not physical descendants of Abraham dwelling in that land. That's not to say that God's been unfaithful. No, no, he has been faithful. He's done so in his son, Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you're perfectly right, right? We never want to underplay that God is fulfilling actual promises so much that we would just say, oh yeah, like the promised land, sure, sure, sure. But it's not really about that, right? I mean, this is a grand promise and the fulfillment of it is is incredibly important. And yet, as God's people, particularly of the new covenant with more revealed to us, right, about God's ultimate plans, uh, even though, of course, it's there in the Old Testament as well, uh, we can say, though, that this this land is not it, right? And so, again, we don't need to go on, uh, you know, in our day, um, placing an overemphasis on this particular piece of land, but rather saying, no, we desire a better land than that. That's right. Well, and this is the point that the writer of Hebrews makes, even when he's speaking about these very patriarchs, that they too were looking forward to a better land, a, a different country, and they were saved in that faith, the same faith that we have. So we've got Moses on behalf of the Lord dividing up the east side of the Jordan River for these three, two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh. Now, as they, as they receive the land on the east side of the Jordan River as this foretaste, this appetizer, there is more to come. And, and if I remember correctly, when this is recorded in the book of Numbers, and these tribes want to stay on this side of the Jordan, Moses initially reacts with a bit of anger or displeasure because, because he thinks that maybe they're, they're trying to get out of their responsibility to the rest of their brothers. Some of that is not described here in Deuteronomy 3, but you, you mentioned this earlier. There is something described that, yes, you get this land on this side of the Jordan River, but you don't get to go build your homes just yet. What, is, what does Moses tell these two and a half tribes about their continued duty toward the rest of Israel. Well, yeah, I think, you know, as we're in this section of scripture where we get <clears throat> all this land divided up by tribes, it can be a place where we sort of you could forget about the unity of Israel, right? That that while they are 12 tribes, they are one nation or one family, you know, whatever terminology you want to use there. And this we see here, you know, you can sort of imagine this, right, that these first three tribes uh, get told, right, here's your land uh, that you're going to inherit and that they would want to get right to, okay, great, we, our part's done, we're going to settle down, we're going to start building, we're going to uh, go out and see, you know, these, these uh, fields, these vineyards that we didn't plant, that we're going to reap from, all these kind of different things things. Uh, and yet, uh, here Moses says, no, right? Your, your men of valor or your, you know, we might say your, your men of, of warring age, 
you're going to go over with all of your brothers because in order for God's promise to be fulfilled, it's not enough that the foretaste uh, would happen, right? The whole thing's got to happen. And therefore, you're going to go make sure this whole thing happens. Uh, And indeed, we are told at the end of the conquest that this all did happen, that God completed the conquest. Then these men are told, now you can go back and return uh, to your wives and your little ones and your livestock, right? All these kind of things. And so again, God's word is good here that uh, these men are going to uh, come back to this very possession. Uh, But for the sake of the unity of Israel and for the sake of God's word uh, being fulfilled, uh, they go along with their brothers. They're not just going to sit there while the rest of their brothers go to war. Mm. Well, and okay, so what I think this is important because you know we've got the the twelve tribes of Israel, and and again you can see all this on a map. We're just talking about the division of the east side today, but later in the book of Joshua, the the other side will be divided as well. All of them though fight these these battles together. Why why is that kind of unity? important, necessary for the people of Israel. And then, I mean, I, I want to connect this to the New Testament and the church, but I'm not sure exactly how. Can, can you help me there? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it is always important that we recognize that God's people of promise are one, right? And even though, again, let's, let's talk, you know, if we're talking about New Testament church, I think there's maybe some other application. But first and foremost, we could simply talk about if we say like our church body, right? But we have people in our church body that are living in different regions, different states, right? And even down to different congregations. And we can often get very focused in on our own uh, little part of the kingdom. And sometimes even in a way that might damage other parts of the kingdom, right? If you have a congregation that's uh, extraordinarily blessed uh, financially, and yet they just say, well, what can we do with that? Other than sometimes saying, how can we bless, you know, other congregations? I was, I was just talking to a brother pastor, and I'm not sure of all the implications of this, but he was telling me that his congregation, which happens to be located uh, in a particularly wealthy area uh, and, and therefore is quite financially blessed, has actually agreed to take on other congregations and pay two-thirds of their pastor's salary for them so that they can continue to operate, right? That That's unity in the body of Christ, right? Again, I don't know all the details and, you know, everything about that, that arrangement, but I, I think it is critically important that we, even when we have these divisions, which again, you know, God um, used divisions here among the tribes. So it's not that we can't, you know, say, oh yeah, I've got prime concern for my congregation or my city or my community, but that our eyes would always be bigger than that, right? Because these, you know, I guess even if you just want to look at it biologically, right, these are the the 12 sons, but they're all from one father, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's, I think that's helpful. And to think about the relationship between congregations today and the way that, yes, for the the sake of caring for the people of God, it's important to have a local congregation, but that that local congregation is a part of the the one holy Christian and apostolic church, and and recognizing that and working in that regard in in real life, like like you described, I think that that's something for us today. So I mean that that's a that's a good application of this text from Deuteronomy three. We're going to keep looking at it on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, talking Deuteronomy three with Pastor Philip Hoppy. We'll be right back. 
Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, August 8th. We're studying Deuteronomy 3, verses 12 to 29 with Pastor Philip Hoppe. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas. Pastor Hoppe, prior to the break, we were talking about the people of Israel, these two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan River, get that land, but Moses says you need to come over, your warring men need to come over and fight for the rest of the promised land with your brothers. And they do that, as you, you pointed out, they do that. We talked about the, the importance of the unity within the church. As, as we were talking about, you know, the, there's the need for the local congregation. Certainly, the Lord speaks about that. And yet the reality of the one church, some of it reminded me just of the way, and, and Moses brought this up earlier in his sermon in chapter one, about the way that he himself had arranged for leadership within the people of Israel, and he, he set commanders over different groups of people, almost just by way of necessity. And I think there's there's something to that, you know, there's there's an earthly wisdom that's there, and, and certainly it's godly wisdom as well, to arrange people so that they can be governed and helped. But to, I, you know, to keep that in view, I think is, is always one of the challenges. So the, the ways that you know, we can certainly care for our own congregations and the people who are here. That's very important. When we think about the way Paul speaks of the church in 1 Corinthians 12, that we work together as a body, we should apply that to our own congregations. But then at the same time, to also think about it in a larger sense, I, sense is just as important. And, and you know, the, the opportunity that you described of, of one congregation supporting another, I think that's a, a great example. So some some food for thought here in, in Deuteronomy chapter 3 for all of us to, to be thinking about how we can both support our own congregations, but also then be a member of that one worldwide church as well. Yeah, and I, I think just practically speaking, I'm always a big proponent of circuits uh, in our church. You know, I, I think, you know, circuits are big enough to give us that sense that there's other needs outside of our congregation. And yet, you know, I mean, we certainly would not want the Synod and Convention determining every action of every congregation, right? That that just wouldn't work. You do need the local leaders and things to do that. Uh, but yet, at the same time, uh, you know, we're reminded at the circuit level that we have brothers and sisters that may need our aid. And so just encourage everybody listening, uh, you know, wherever is available at that circuit level to try to be more involved with that. I think it'll give you a practical way to address these kind of concerns in your in your midst. So as the, the text continues, after the division of the land, beginning in about verse 21, the rest of our text for today centers on 
the two main characters in the book of Deuteronomy. If there are main quote characters in Deuteronomy, it's it's a lot lot of sermons here. But the primary human actors are certainly Moses, and then you know Joshua is just waiting there in the wings. Right. And so the the rest of our text really deals with them, starting with Joshua, then Moses, then back to Joshua. So in in verses twenty one and twenty two, what do we find out about Joshua first? Well, interestingly, here again we get the charge right given from Moses to Joshua, um, and I I don't know I was just when I was just rereading this uh, again, you know. Um, you think back to Joshua and Caleb at the beginning, right? And, um, you know, we, we do this with all of God's people. Some people we just sort of categorize that if at one point they were of, you know, uh, outstanding faith, that they had this consistently. Because if that's the case with Joshua, you know, you'd almost think that Joshua would look back and, you know, say to Moses, well, I've known this all along, right? I didn't need to see what God was going to do to these two kings to have this confidence. I knew it all along that God had given, uh, you know, us this this great inheritance and would go with us. And yet, I think that would probably overdo uh, any human to think that they had a a constant um, faith like that, right? And so, Joshua even here, at least Moses tells him, right, is to be strengthened by what has just happened. And, you know, even again, you might know, like, you know, when when one person is taking over leadership for another, I think often you find that the new leader – uh, leading up to it, kind of thinks, I'm ready for this. I might be able to do this. And then in the moment that leadership is about to transfer, there's sort of a moment of panic, right? Uh, sure. And I wonder here if that, you know, we're not told that specifically, but just these words might speak a little bit to that, that Joshua, right? God is going with you. The thing you know, I'm going to tell you again, right? And we we always need that as God's people. Even the things we know, I'll often say that to people as a pastor, I know you know this, but I'm going to say it to you so you hear it again, right? And mm-hmm. and that's kind of what Moses is doing here for Joshua, I think, in preparing him for, I mean, what is a monumental task? Let us not uh, underestimate what the conquest of the promised land uh, actually took, right? Uh, we can just read about it and go, oh yeah, Joshua took over the took over the promised land as if that you know just happened uh, very easily. Well, that's right, and I think you know we should we should keep in mind that Joshua was a, an old man at this point, at least by what our standards today would be. I'm not right. positive how old exactly he is, but he has he's been with the people of Israel wandering for 40 years, and we know he was at least you know over 20 at the time when the spies went in. So because he was one of the the two exceptions to that right. age yeah. rule as to who and and we know that that Joshua at the end of the book of Joshua he's 110 when he dies. Yeah. So. But much like Moses was 80 years old when he began leading the people of Israel, Joshua is not a young man at this point. He's gone through a lot. And to, you know, to think about, okay, you're going to, you're going to be the successor to, as the book of Deuteronomy will tell us at the end, the greatest prophet, like nobody else is going to measure up to this guy. You get to follow him (laughs) and you're an old man. Like, you need you need some some strengthening of faith at that moment. I think we should we should always keep in mind that even the the greatest saints of the the scriptures they needed their faith strengthened the same as we do. Yeah, and and what is the ultimate confidence we go with? Right, it's the same that Joshua did. Right, that <clears throat> for Joshua, obviously here a very literal fight in the sense of a war. But this great line, right? It is the Lord your God who fights for you, right? I mean, this is this is no matter what we're doing. Um, you know, I was talking to a brother pastor who was 
later in his ministry and was talking about a new call, right? And, and uh, you know, I guess pastors maybe don't talk about this a lot, but, you know, there was some reticence on his point about did he still have kind of enough energy to go to a new call and start all over? Well, you know, what do we need to tell a guy like that? Well, the Lord your God fights for you, right? You've you've got the strength, not because you've got the strength, right? But because you have the Lord your God. And and so many times in life we need to be reminded of that because we we do grow weary uh, and we need to remember the true strength we have in the Lord. That's right. And and I love the way, too, in these these verses that Moses reminds Joshua of the fact that he himself saw this. You know, your eyes have seen all that the Lord has, has done to these two kings. Uh, Joshua would have been an eyewitness to what happened in Egypt and in the Red Sea. But now Moses reminds him, hey, just think about what the Lord did for you just very recently with these two kings and the fact that you saw it. And once again, we have that reminder from the scriptures that the the things that are described in God's word are actual events that God acted in time and space to save his people. People saw it, they bear witness to it, and in that confidence, they they live. And, and Joshua is an example of one of those eyewitnesses, and that fact that he saw what God has done, that is meant to strengthen him to continue. And, and I love that. I do love that in verse 22. The Lord is the one who fights for you. What a, what a fantastic promise. Yeah, you can't can't get any better than that, right? When the Lord of the Lord God of Sabaoth is on your side, that's that's a good place to be. That's right. That's right. Even when all of the the previous fighting men have died in the wilderness, here you have the Lord, the general Yahweh who is fighting for you. What a what a wonderful promise. So, Moses strengthens Joshua in that, and then we hear a little bit about Moses and I, we have a, a prayer of Moses recorded for us. I think that's the, the way to characterize this. I pleaded with the Lord at that time. And and he wants to go into the promised land. And uh, I don't know, is Moses whining here? <laughs> well, I mean, in one sense, you can understand, right? This is one of these things where I think we have to, again, take seriously God's uh, judgment, his justice, all those things, because in one sense, we can just go, oh, come on, God, why don't you just give in and let Moses go in? After all, you know, he's done so much. Uh, He's invested his whole life in this. He's dealt with the grumblings of the people. So there's one sense in which you can see it. But the other sense is, you know, uh, I noticed here too, Moses, of course, says, you know, the the reason why the Lord was angry with him at the time uh, of striking the rock, where it was because of you, mainly, you know, the tribes of Israel, the the people of Israel. So he even kind of tries to shift the blame a little bit here and say, all right, God, can't you just let me in? You know, it, uh, I had to deal with your people and, you know, yeah, I made a mistake. So there, there is almost a, a whining about it. And yet, you can understand. I mean, you know, think if you had striven for some particular thing your whole life um, and then you get so close and yet are not going to be able to actually see it, uh, you can understand how that would be kind of, uh, you know, twist your soul a little bit. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is a, a whining, I say, you know, tongue in cheek. I don't know that we should characterize it as whining, but I, I like the way that, that you framed it, that this is, you know, Moses is at the end of his career here as the leader of Israel, and he's he's brought the people so far, of course he wants to go in and see it. And and so I think, you know, not rather than a, a whining, but but an honest prayer, and, and, you know, you're right, he does here say that this is 
on account of you. There are other places where he certainly admits his own fault in the reason that he doesn't get to go into the promised land. So he, you see both in the book of Deuteronomy. But but here his his prayer, if, if, which I think is the the way to take this, it is. I think it's a good prayer. <laughs> uh, it's it's a, certainly a bold prayer because he knows what the Lord has said, and yet in confidence as to who God is, he still requests this this mercy, this grace from God. Talk a little bit about what Moses, how he prays in verses twenty four and twenty five. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that, and this, you know, um, it teaches us how to pray, even as we're we're reading this prayer. Right, that well, what is the basis for our confidence in prayer? Well, it is always two things. One is God's character and the other are his promises, right? And so Moses says here first, right, that, you know, what other God is there that can do all these things that you've done? So again, he kind of starts off by just saying, God, all things are possible for you, right? And so, uh, you know, and obviously the one he's hoping for here that it's still possible uh, that he can go over. But then even he gets to the second thing where he understands that the Lord was angry and yet he has learned to know that the Lord's promise of mercy is sort of ever present. And so uh, he asks for that here again, right? Not that, um, you know, that I, that he deserves it, but rather that God in his mercy would, would do this. And this is, it's one of those weird places in scripture where I think again, as you and I are reading, we almost expect God to say, yeah, come on in, right? Because we too know of the character and the mercy of our God, and, and that's kind of what we expect. And yet here we see the other side, that God also has to remain faithful here to his word that he has already spoken about this matter, right? Uh, he has told Moses that he will not uh, go into the promised land, just like he had told all those other people that they would fall in the wilderness. And so that word of the Lord remains too, even though it's a it's a word of, of law. Um, you know, there are just some times where the consequences of sin uh, will remain, even though the person has repented and God has fully and freely forgiven them, there still are these consequences that remain. Yeah, I mean, I think in, within this prayer of Moses, you see both the boldness that is there in our prayers because of the, you know, he he goes ahead and presents this request to God, even though he, he knows what God has said to him, but still he asks for the mercy of God. So he's got that boldness, but also then a willingness to receive the answer that the Lord gives. And, I mean, you know, that's one of the the mysterious things about prayer, I suppose. There, the, There's two other examples from the scriptures, at least, that come to my mind when it comes to a, a prayer somewhat like this, at least, and then the Lord saying no. Uh, those The two examples that I can think of are when David prays for his infant son who who ends up dying, the, the one that he had with Bathsheba. Right. The Lord had said through the prophet Nathan, you know, this son will die. David still prays for that son, and and the Lord says no. The other, the other one that comes to mind is in the New Testament. It's not exactly the same situation, but St. Paul has that thorn in his side, and he yeah. says three times he asked for the Lord to, to remove it, and each time the Lord said no. So there's that that boldness of prayer that but then also the at the same time the willingness to receive whatever answer God gives as as his will as his good answer. 
Yeah, I mean, think about it that just to kind of finish up that thought narratively, right? David uh, rises, right? And the people think he's kind of odd that he leaves behind his mourning so quickly, but he has understood that this is God's answer, right? This is, this is his final answer. And so he moves on. And here, obviously, Moses does go up to the top of this mountain and behold uh, these things. So again, too, he doesn't, you know, uh, continue to persist after this. He, he, Asks this one final time, and understanding the Lord's answer, he acts in accordance with that of saying, "This is what the Lord has given me." Right, and and it's certainly a, a an act of mercy that God allows him to go up and behold this with his own eyes. Right, there's a there's a physical nature to that. Right, there's one thing of being so close to something and you can't see it. I mean, imagine if, you know, you wanted to go see Mount Rushmore and and you knew you were within five miles of it, but you didn't see it. That's a whole different deal than if, okay, we don't have time to stop, but going by, you at least get to capture a glimpse of it, right? Uh, you, You know, and that's kind of what Moses gets here. Well, that's right. I mean, and it is a it is a great mercy that God does allow him to see this promised land, and and we get a greater description of that toward the end before Moses actually dies. Right. And, and you know, I mean, I I appreciate too what you said that there are there are times where the earthly consequences of a sin that we've committed do remain. And I again, I think that now that that kind of takes out the example that I mentioned of Paul in in Second Corinthians because we're not sure what that thorn in his side is. But I do think that this is one of those examples. When when Moses prays for this opportunity to see the promised land and the Lord says no, we do know that Moses, it will be in the heavenly promised land, the eternal promised land of the resurrection. I mean, we have that from Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's talking with Moses. And we know that Moses is one who lived by faith. So Moses' sin is forgiven. He is with the Lord eternally. And yet he still faces this earthly consequence of not being able to to enter into the promised land. And that that's a reality we face sometimes as well. Yeah. And if I could give one quick example of that, right, is, I mean, there's a lot to talk about here, but if we're in the case of a pastor who has clearly done something that disqualifies him from mis- ministry, and obviously you could do a whole Bible study on what that would mean and what yeah. that would look like, but it is possible that the pastor can no longer be a pastor, but certainly will still be included in God's people on the last day, right? So that's another kind of quick example of how we might see this, where there's something that persists, even though God's grace and mercy has been poured out, the sin has been removed, uh, the guilt removed, and therefore that person uh, is, you know, perfectly pure in God's eyes uh, through Christ and will, you know, be in, in the new heavens and new earth. Yeah, yeah. And I think Moses, that's a good example to bring up with someone like Moses, who is a leader of God's people, and in many senses, their pastor for this, for those 40 yeah. years. And, and here, that's I think that's a perfect way to, to think about what happens here. So that does take us into the, the Lord's answer. And it sounds kind of harsh, but again, the Lord just puts it out to Moses. No, the answer is no. You will get to look at it, though. And, and then as the text concludes, we do come back to Joshua. Uh, what What is the Lord? So we've got a, sort of a, a book in here. Joshua, yes. Moses, no. Joshua, yes, again. What do we get 
at the end toward Joshua. Well, and I guess I would say here, even, I mean, isn't it sort of an act of mercy that Moses, again, has one final role, right? To charge Joshua, to encourage him, to strengthen him. So it's not just a, no, you're done. It's no, you've got one final thing really to do here before you go. I think of kind of like Elijah and the last final things he had to do before Elisha would take over. Same thing here. His task is specifically, like we said, to, to bolster up in every way Joshua, for he is going to be the one that's going to take over and be head of the people. And so he needs every bit of encouragement that you can give to him so that he can go and do this job well. I, I like that. I, I like that a lot, that that part of what the Lord is telling Moses here is that there is, you still need to do this, Moses. You, you're not getting to go into the promised land, but I do still have this work for you. And, and it includes this charging of Joshua to encourage and strengthen him because he's the one that needs to go to go with them. He will be the one to give them the land, which again, man, to think about uh, Joshua at this moment, to, to, uh, since that's where the text concludes, what a what a responsibility Joshua is given here at this moment. And, and I know we're studying the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to focus on the words of Moses, but it might be worth just a, a few minutes reflection on on the role that Joshua plays. You know, oh, that's a that's a tough act to follow, Moses. And and here it is Moses who is the mouthpiece for the Lord to strengthen Joshua to do the job that God is giving. Yeah, and you know, not only a tough act to follow, and you know, I don't know how aware of Joshua this is, but he also becomes one of the kind of archetypes of Christ, right? He is uh, the man that leads the people into the promised land, right? And so uh, not only is he, you know, trying to live up to what Moses did, but God is also using him now to give a beautiful picture of what Jesus, his son, is going to do to lead his people in victory into the new land. And yeah, to, I mean, talk about two pairs of shoes that are, you know, with Moses, maybe we could say hard to fill and with Jesus impossible to fill. But that's that's what Joshua is, right? Even bearing the same name as our Lord, uh, you know, in the different languages. Uh, and so, yeah, he needs this encouragement. He needs this charge. Of course, ultimately, he needs the Lord fighting for him. But part of how the Lord fights is always through his people, too, and the encouragement of his people. And that's what Moses is given to do here for Joshua. Talk, talk a little bit about how Joshua then does become this this type of Christ leading the people into the promised land. I, I think we should we need to be careful when we do this so that we don't that we don't disparage Moses because we do know that Moses preached Christ and we're going to see that especially in Deuteronomy chapter 18 within this book and of course we know elsewhere all the the sacrificial system that is come comes through the mouth of Moses right this is the Lord preaching Christ through Moses. So I don't want to disparage Moses too much, but it does strike me that the one who gets named Joshua, as you said, the same name for Jesus, he gets to be the one to lead the people into the promised land and not Moses, that there is, there's someone yet coming Moses for as good as he, as he has been, he's not finally the one it needs to be someone else to lead the people in. Yeah. And I think, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but Moses spoken of in the scripture is, I mean, you know, he's spoken of in in such high terms, and rightly so, and yet there's always a reminder that he's the old covenant, right? Uh, there's always this sense in which there's there's something new to come, right? The law came through Moses, but, you know, grace and, and mercy through Jesus Christ, right? And so, um, I, I think here, again, that this is intentional. I mean, 
this is where you get that you're not God, right? How can he both use Moses so powerfully and yet still give us a picture that that the covenant of Moses is lesser ultimately than the new covenant that will be established? And he can throw in here at this critical point in God's history, oh yeah, Joshua, right? Remember that name for later. And oh yeah, he's going to lead his people into you know a new land free of, of the slavery to sin and all of this kind of stuff. So, I mean, to me, it's one of these places just leaves me baffled how God uh, can both perfectly deal with the people he's dealing with and yet give these wonderful pictures of what's to come. Yeah, and and even with Joshua being that picture, he too is still just a picture. As the writer of, of Hebrews reminds us, that the rest that Joshua gave to the people here, even that is not the final rest that the Lord has prepared for us in the the final Jesus, the final Joshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So all of this, again, pointing forward to what God does through his son, even in the division of land, the succession of leadership from Joshua to Moses. Got about three minutes here, Pastor Hoppy, for final reflections on this text. Again, it's you, know, you, you read through, it's like, okay, it's a lot of history, geography I'm not sure about. I know Moses and, and Joshua. How, how do we take a text like this and make use of it as Christians? Well, I think in one sense, you know, uh, in preparing for this text, uh, it, you know, it kind of a you know, I was a little worried too of like, what application are we going to have to today? And I guess the encouragement I would give then is, you know, as you and I have got to just sit here and think through and talk through both the stuff we've researched and, you know, studied, uh, but also just kind of think through the implications of the text. I think it's a wonderful encouragement for other Christians to do that as well. If there's a text that you uh, look at and you're not, um, I hate to say you're not, you know, overly enthralled with in the moment, uh, sit down and talk to another Christian about it. And I think you'll be surprised how God brings other things to mind and leads you to other parts of scripture uh, and just encourages you uh, and shows you the ways that this text, uh, you know, is important both for the people of old, but also for us as well. Pastor Philip Hoppe is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas, helping us today with Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 12 to 29. Pastor Hoppe, thanks for being our guest today. So glad to be with you. The Lord fulfills his promises. He gave the east side of the Jordan River to two and a half tribes of his people as a foretaste of what he was yet to do on the other side of the Jordan River, fulfilling that promise made to Abraham that his offspring would receive that land. God always keeps his promises, and he has done so for us in his son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have an even greater land, the resurrection life that is yet to come. We receive a foretaste of that even now in word and sacrament as the Holy Spirit comes to us, the promise that God will, in fact, keep his promises, the promises for which we are waiting. We know he will keep just as he kept them for Moses, for Joshua, for his people of old. So he keeps them for us still today. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Deuteronomy chapter 3, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org. You can always also use the open mic feature on the app. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.